0: Hello, if you haven't met me, my name is Sarah and we're gonna be having the Bible reading now. So if you wanna grab out your Bibles and flick open to Galatians chapter two, um, we're gonna be reading from verses one to 21 to so the whole of chapter two. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we had in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me they agreed that we should go to the gentiles and they to the circumcised all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing i had been eager to do all along when cephas came to antioch i opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from james he used to eat with the gentiles but when they arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed,
1: Well, good evening. <clears throat> if you've got uh, Galatians 2 open in front of you, keep it there. We pay very close attention, don't we? For much of military history, notions of attack and defence have been based on the logic that we're here, the enemy's over there. At some point, they're going to come at us and we'll defend from our position or we'll go to them and they'll defend their position. That's how it works. But I was reminded recently, uh, on ANZAC Day, reading the accounts of some Vietnam War veterans, that their war was very, very different. They fought in thick jungle, where the enemy line, their line, was never obvious. And the enemy would often come at them in non-linear, unpredictable ways, not just in the jungle, but out on the street, in the city, when these soldiers were supposedly at rest or in safety or behind the lines. It was guerrilla warfare. Now, in truth, there's a long history of successful guerrilla warfare uh, dating back to ancient times. And it bends to far more than military struggle. I don't know if you know it, but as Sarah read Galatians 2, we were being given an account of spiritual guerrilla warfare. And And Paul, the writer, is writing as a freedom fighter, He's not someone fighting for freedom, but with it. He's not someone seeking freedom, he's actually defending it. And he's writing to others who are also to be freedom fighters. That's anyone, back then or now, who holds Christ as Lord and Saviour. It's the freedom that comes through faith in Christ that gives you an incredible liberty before God and in this world. Paul's not fighting for freedom but with it. He's not seeking after freedom, he's defending it. And it's guerrilla warfare. This struggle is not neat, it's not linear. This is a a struggle that is very close to the bone. It's hand-to-hand combat. Did you hear his reference to the fact that false believers had infiltrated their ranks? They were inside the building. And towards the end of the chapter, he has to go head-to-head with an apostle Peter, it's all up close, it's hand to hand, and he is fighting for you and for me as much as the Galatian and Jerusalem Christians. I know, and you might have felt this last week as well, when you open Galatians, you think, this is all pretty local, this is pretty back then. Has this really got anything to do with me, my week, my life? Yes, it does. Paul is our apostle, This is our guy. Unless you come from a Jewish background, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, he went to the Jews as well, but he's our guy. When he fights, it's for us now, not just back then. This battle is for our freedom. And in some ways, the letter to the Galatians is the war memorial of the New Testament. There are battles given and accounts of them all through the letters, but I think Galatians is the war memorial. It sits there amongst all of the parts of the New Testament to remind us of a time when the early church almost got it wrong, when our freedom was almost lost, but it wasn't. Galatians is our war memorial, and as we step into this part of the letter, we're going to encounter two points of defence wrapped around... Paul's affirmation that the gospel goes everywhere, but it's the same gospel. So we're looking at that first defence, which is no circumcision, then look at one gospel, different harvest fields, and then the second defence, which is stop running back to the law. So let's look at that first one, no circumcision. As we step deeper into the letter, it becomes evident that the enemies of the gospel in Galatia have been trading on their supposed links back to the Jerusalem church and its leaders. If you read Acts 15, it's evident they didn't arrive with that stamp. They weren't sent by these guys, but the Galatians couldn't have known that up front. But Paul knows that they're trading on their supposed links back there, which is why in chapter 1, we see him establish the gospel that he's preached, the authority that he bears as an apostle. It hasn't come from Jerusalem It didn't come from men, it came direct from the living God and his son, Jesus Christ. The Christ who met him on that Damascus road and turned a savage opponent into the first great missionary of the church. That's chapter 1. But here in chapter 2, we pick up this account, he recounts that he eventually did have substantial contact with the church in Jerusalem. Now there's some debate over timelines and the movement of Paul. But I think it's likely that what he's responding to here is the false teachers that were described in Acts 15. It says there that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Here is the fundamental perversion of the gospel. The gospel of Christ, the perversion that was cursed back in chapter 1. Friends, remember that this is not a brand new religion these guys are selling. It's a perversion of the gospel of Christ. Every heresy picks and chooses, takes up bits and pieces of scripture, familiar traditions, terms that people have heard firsthand, secondhand, mixes it with the gospel and ends up with something very different and very damaging. We saw that last week, didn't we, as Nigel unpacked the first chapter. That's how heresies work. That's how they operate. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Do you hear what's being said to those Galatians, and to each of us here tonight? That unless... it's basically saying you can't get to Jesus. You cannot be saved unless you step through the Jewish door and become Jewish. And not only get circumcised, but operate and live according to all that that circumcision represents, a life lived in accord with the law given through Moses. And unless you do that, you are not saved. I am condemned. We are going to hell. That's what these men are teaching. How different is that to the gospel that Paul outlines in the first five verses of this letter? Now we heard, didn't we, last week, the blunt force of Paul's anger at those men and the Galatians that were starting to swallow that rubbish. And here you can still feel the heat, can't you? Even as he recounts what happened in Jerusalem and that defence back in Antioch. Having spoken of returning to Jerusalem to check his gospel was in line with theirs, he notes this in verse 3. He says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus And make us slaves. He's referring now back to the incident in Antioch. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, if the Galatians think that the Jerusalem church honestly believes that they need to be Jews in order to be saved, then why didn't they demand that Titus be circumcised? But they didn't, did they? No one there demanded that at all. Contra the false teachers in Antioch. Paul didn't give in to them for a moment. Why does he fight so hard? Why does this matter so much? Because even though the good news of Jesus does rise up out of the Jewish nation and the scriptures given to them, Even though Jesus is the Messiah long promised to Israel, the salvation that he's bringing is for all nations. We're going to see that stated explicitly next week in chapter 3. Those who would be saved, be they Jewish or Gentile, must come exactly the same way. There is a right door to step through, and it's not becoming a Jew. It is the door of faith. Faith in what Christ has done, not in what we have done. We've already sung about that tonight, haven't we? It's faith in the one, in Jesus, who has fulfilled the Mosaic customs. He's fulfilled the law in his death on the cross and his rising to new life. That's the gospel. That's the door we enter in by. Anything less or more is not the gospel. Now, no one at this church is going to push for circumcision. There are no specific food laws here. You are free to go to Maccas after this. I, of course, every Sunday night will go home to a cup of tea and nod off in front of Gardening Australia. (laughs) But you're free to go to Maccas, and we are all equally saved. We are saved. I'm going to pay for that, aren't I? Um, (laughs) No-one here is pushing circumcision. No-one here is, is stipulating certain food laws. But have we got other more subtle, even overt additions that we have allowed to creep in? Certain things beyond faith that we think actually are basic to salvation. Salvation. There are certainly behaviours stipulated in God's word that should mark the believer, even the brand new believer. Certain things that are true of the one who is now wedded to Christ. But there are other matters that are not basic to belief. They're not core to our standing in Christ that can be granted circumcision status. These might be cultural preferences, they might be prejudices, that we allow to become prerequisites. So I've heard it said that unless you are a strict, literal, seven-day creationist, you are not a follower of Christ. That's not the gospel, is it? I've heard people say, unless you speak in tongues or you are a member of my specific church, you are not saved. That's not the gospel either. What about cultural or generational differences or assumptions? If someone's 85 years old and they just hate the drums, they would never worship in that manner, do they love Jesus? Are they followers of the Lord? Or is that impossible? What if I'm a heroin addict or I'm in prison or I'm an alcoholic Do I actually need to get clean, get out, before I can follow Jesus? Because that's a different gospel. What about this guy? Is he welcome at our church? I hope so, because he's already here. This is Vuti Tabtiang. He's a Thai-born, American-raised, snowboarding nurse. He's married, he's a husband, he's got kids, and he attends over at St. Ives Park with us. This guy loves Jesus. The way he speaks of him, the way he opens God's word and growth is beautiful, mighty. And yet talking to Naomi, it's Naomi's his wife this morning, said that there was a church in the States when he first it was an early young Christian said, No, you cannot come here. Tattoos are sinful. And it was a profoundly wounding experience for him. Very, very hard to bear. What do we like with someone who looks different to our general or common look? There was a woman I met in, the, in our suburb. Um, she said she couldn't, didn't feel easy coming to church because her husband had a few tattoos. I said, come and meet Voodoo." But doesn't that say something about those out there? There are certain assumptions that I can't really look like this and be welcome there. I can't be that and actually go into that building and hang out with these people. Friends, let's be very, very careful and very honest here. Do we give an air of unwelcome to those who look different, sound different, Let's search our hearts and cast a gospel eye over our church and our beliefs and our hearts to make sure that we've got no lurking or overt additions to the gospel, no circumcision requirements that pervert the freedom that Christ has granted us by faith alone. If we see those things, we've got to follow Paul, name them, do battle. Fight for the freedom that comes through faith in Christ alone. Fight for the gospel that can go anywhere without cultural baggage. So part two, one gospel, different harvest fields. In 2 verse 1 and 2 we see Paul deeply concerned to make sure that his gospel lines up with others. Chapter 1 is about establishing his independence from Jerusalem. But here he's just as careful to emphasise the importance of church unity. He goes to Jerusalem to make sure of it. His fear of running his race in vain is that all of these Gentile believers whom the Lord has saved, maybe they won't be welcomed in Jerusalem. Maybe they'll have the door put in their face. As he notes in verses 6 and 7, that didn't happen. Those leaders added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognised that I'd been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So here he's using uncircumcised as just code for those who are not Jewish. If the Galatian Christians have swallowed the false line that all those in Jerusalem, those apostles, were about the law, then they're just going to have to think again. They held to exactly the same gospel as Paul, salvation through faith, in Christ alone. It was just that it was going out to different people. It was going into different harvest fields and some of those fields were so, so different to the ones in which Paul and the apostles had grown up in. It's hard for us to imagine just how split and tribalized the ancient world was. The brilliant thing is that the gospel, once it's stripped of its cultural necessities, but things that we might add to it, it is perfectly designed to land in any context, every context, and do its great saving work if God should choose to use it in that way. That way we've got immense liberty to take the gospel wherever we are, whatever our context, be it uni or work or home, wherever. We do so in faith, we do it bearing a very great responsibility and we do it sensitively. It's faith, isn't it, that God can reveal himself to anyone and save them, whatever their background. It's also the responsibility to share the gospel, including its Jewish roots in the long story of scripture, i.e. exactly what Paul's doing in Galatians, but also sensitive to the person's background and situation. I think this is the tension that we face here, isn't it, that so we are creatures of habit, we do attach all sorts of things to our worship of God. There's a certain way we do things here at St Ives. But at some point if we go elsewhere and they do things differently, is it wrapped around the same gospel? Then brilliant. Let them do it. Let us be sensitive to that context. We must be so careful we're not adding to the gospel certain things that we do culturally that we somehow think are basic to Salvation. Speaking to Garbo Chan this week about the Mandarin ministry, she said one of the biggest challenges was going in with with no presumptions about what this newcomer knows. She is regularly encountering people who have no Christian heritage at all. Jesus is a stranger. The biblical categories of sin and salvation are brand new. And no concept of the long, deep run through the Old Testament all the way up to Jesus. She just assumes that they have none of that and must start from basics. And yet, in our time, in our day, God is doing mighty, mighty work through Leo, Garbo, an entire team in that ESL Mandarin ministry to bring our neighbours, our Mandarin-speaking neighbours, to the Lord. They're operating with faith, taking seriously their responsibility and being very sensitive. And the Lord's honouring that in our time, this is our church, this is our story in this generation. Friends, we must be very, very careful, like Paul with the Galatians, to treasure and to guard and to nurture these young brothers and sisters in the faith. Part of what made the Galatians so vulnerable is that they did not grow up with a Jewish heritage. They didn't know God's word. So these guys show up talking in terms that sound very authoritative it's certainly back there in the scriptures, they sound impressive, and some of the Galatians started to swallow what was a false gospel. They were vulnerable, just as our younger brothers and sisters in the faith are as well, because they don't have the background. Like Paul, let's treasure them, guard them, nurture them into maturity. Because as we see in what follows... Those who are false but sound impressive can be a very damaging presence to even seasoned believers, including an apostle who knew Jesus personally, and that's Peter. So last part. Defence number two, don't run back to the law. I mentioned at the start, this is you know, spiritual guerrilla warfare. It easily becomes intensely personal in hand-to-hand combat. And Paul's second defence is one of the great crises of the early church. It's the sort of incident, if you were a PR firm, you'd say, bury this, just wipe it from the slate. But God, through Paul, made sure this was never forgotten. This was inscribed in scripture. It's a PR disaster, but it's a vital battle. He made sure it was there, even though it involved a clash between two key apostles in the early church, Peter and Paul. And it's a reminder that leaders, even apostles, can be drawn into error and that others are always watching you as a leader, as you are watching me. You leading kids or youth, they are always, always watching as you have every reason to watch me. And this is a reminder leaders can get it wrong. Our presence can be a blessing, but it can be an immense burden and damaging. Let's pay close attention. This battle matters. See, Peter began in line with the gospel that liberates all believers to eat together irrespective of their background. This was was revolutionary. This was highly provocative behaviour in an ancient, tribalised, separated world. Even today, each of us, we'd have Jewish neighbours who as friendly as they are, they won't invite us into their house. They cannot in good conscience sit at a table and eat with us. This was so true of the ancient world. In Mark 7, Jesus had declared all foods acceptable, marking the fact that the strict food laws that God had instituted in the law had done their job, their time had come, and now it was over. And in Christ, an entirely new table was being set that everyone was welcome at, Jew and Gentile, eating together as one. And that was confirmed in Acts 10, where Peter has this amazing vision of animals coming down and he's told, kill, eat, enjoy. God is opening up the table for all to be seated together in fellowship, the sort of fellowship that Peter was having with Jews and Gentiles in Antioch until these guys showed up. They arrived from Jerusalem, clearly disapproving, thinking that behaviour is sinful, And Peter, all too human, pulled back. He was afraid of what they thought. He drew back and others started to follow his example. So friends, never believe the lie that peer pressure somehow dies off when you've done the HSC. It doesn't. It keeps going. We are all vulnerable to it. At some point, will be more concerned with the approval of certain men or women rather than the Lord. Paul spotted it back then and the damage that it was doing. It was so serious he opposed Peter publicly because he stood condemned by his own hypocrisy. He and the others were at this moment worse than the false teachers because they were preaching something but doing the opposite. That's something God hates. He hates that because it's so foreign to who he is. His word, his actions, his character always work as one. That must be true of us, particularly as leaders. And as the circumcision issue, the danger was profound. Peter's example was forcing Gentile believers to start to think, we've got to be Jewish. I've got to be Jewish in the way I live in order to live out my faith. In verse 15, Paul makes clear the advantage that he and Peter had as Jewish background men. Their advantage was not that they had the law, it was that unlike the Gentile crew who had no idea, he and Peter, they knew from hard experience the law doesn't save. They know it. Only Jesus does. Verse 15, it says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified is to be declared right, in this case, in front of the living God who sees everything, the holy God, the judge of all. That's what justification means in this context. Our only hope of that lies in Jesus, that he has done all that's necessary for us to be forgiven, set free to live, not against God, but with him, As Lord. Peter knows that. But right now, he's caught out trying to rebuild the old structure in order to avoid criticism from these men. Whereas in reality, he's profoundly offending God. See, anyone who does that is a real lawbreaker, breaking the law of grace, if you want to put it that way. Paul is saying here stop mucking about with the law. Stop running back to the law. The law as a means of relating to God, it's done. It's finished. It had its time and that time is over. We'll see that later in the letter. Don't you realise the profound change in identity and life that we now have in Jesus? Don't run back there. Look at what we have now. This is not aspirational, one day we'll be like that. He's saying, this is what we have now. Why would you rebuild that? And that's where he goes in verses 19 to 21. Arguably, I think some of the most profound verses in God's word. A very great gift to us. We're going to pray these verses later on. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul uses that first person I here, not just for himself, but for all who belong to Jesus. And it emphasises, doesn't it, the intensely personal, intimate work of Christ on our behalf. Death to the law means the Lord has no longer any claim over the person, it no longer has any power. To condemn. And that happens through the death of Christ. It's his death, or with our death to the law through the law, referring to the fact that Jesus willingly allows himself to be condemned under the law. The guns are turned on him and just fired away until he is dead. He who, as we're told in chapter 1, gave himself for our sins. Also, that we can live for God, forgiven, justified, made right. To say, as Paul does there, I have been crucified with Christ, it means that I see in the cross the Son of God taking my sinful, rebellious, filthy old self down, down, down to death. Until the cost of that sin is paid, it's done, it's buried. It's finished. And the Christ who lives in me is the living Lord who not only identifies with us, not just in the cross, but what comes next, not only identifies with us, but chooses to live in us by his Holy Spirit. That's what we've got to look forward to in the chapters that come, the Spirit who features so large in Galatians. We need to be careful here. When we place our faith in the Christ who's done this for us, it doesn't mean that we somehow cease to exist when we're saying that Christ is Christ who lives in me. It doesn't mean we cease to exist as individuals or we lose our identity. It's actually quite the opposite. We are those who've died to the old, independent, sinful, rebellious life and have been spiritually raised to now live by faith with God live in that deepening dependence in the Lord for which we were made. Do you know that's basic to your design? To walk daily, to go out tonight, to go to bed, wake up in the morning and walk with the one who made you in intimate, deepening dependence. That's what's being described here. Does that describe your life and mine? The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here is that intimate freedom with God that's worth fighting for. Here is that richness of relationship that must be guarded. That's why Paul shuts the door on the circumcises. He publicly rebukes Peter. I'm not going to have anything less than that rich relationship. You are not going to mess with what Christ has done for me. Every move back to the law, every hope that we can be right with God by some other means is to treat that sacrifice like dirt. Paul won't do it. We must not do it. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Friends, treasure the cross of Christ. Drink deeply of these truths. Keep growing in that grace. Well, in conclusion... I mentioned at the start that Galatians operates like the war memorial of the New Testament. When I'm alert, I'm not just sort of racing past the various memorials that we've got in this suburb or the bigger ones in town or elsewhere, and I stop and I bother to look at the names, you can't but be awed, can you? And thankful for those who fought and died so that we do enjoy the sort of liberties that mark this country. But there's a second question, isn't there? Do you ask it? I do. I wonder how I would go in battle. How would I go in war? I hope I never have to answer that question. But when it comes to spiritual warfare, to the guerrilla battle that we see here, it's not an abstract question. Each of us must follow Paul's lead and stand up and do battle for the gospel. We must learn to defend it wherever we see it threatened or perverted. Let's learn from Paul to cast an honest gospel eye over our hearts and our church life and make sure that none of our cultural preferences have quietly become prerequisites for salvation. That none of the things that we kind of prefer have suddenly become a basic door to welcome here and welcome before God. Let's be careful. And where we spot them, Name them, do battle. Do battle for that gospel that lands in the same way in all places, with that same message of hope, ready to meet that culture, ready to go with faith and responsibility and sensitivity. That's the gospel that we bear. That's the gospel we're celebrating tonight. Well, why don't we close by picking up our cards and saying the prayer that's on the the card here. I encourage you to pray this this week, but let's pray it together tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to save both Jews and Gentiles. We have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We now live by faith in your Son, who loved us and gave himself for us. Please give us the courage to defend the gospel, and stand firm in the grace given to us in Christ. Amen. Let's sing.
2: Alright guys, we've got time for some Q&A with James Gardening Australia Macbeth. Uh, James, before we get stuck in, I thought it would just be really good to ask you the same question that you've encouraged us to ask one another. So how has Jesus' death on the cross Sorry, I just scratched my face. Anyway, how has Jesus' death on the cross changed your life? Just briefly. Um,
1: I think that, that my answer is a progressive one. I am growing into a deeper and deeper understanding of what's happened there. I, the cross shows me just how fatal my sin is. It, it kills. It's, it's that serious. So the cross uh, increasingly grieves me for my own sin. But at the same time, I just deepen in wonder. Like that the, a God who would do that for me, that, that blows my mind. Like, so, so it's equal measure, grief and then wonder at his grace.
2: It's really yeah. exciting. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. And we've got quite a few questions on the Slido. Um, question that I had this week is asked by someone, so that's great. Why does the letter refer to Cephas and Peter? Are they the same person, and do you have an answer? <laughs>
1: they are the same, and it's an intriguing question. We, we can't really answer that. I wonder if, in the day, uh, those names were interchangeable. I mean, um, yeah, I, I don't actually have, a, have an answer for that. Um, it's, a curious, it's just a curious anomaly of this particular letter. Uh, it may be that he might have been known in certain quarters of the church by that name more so than Peter. Um, but, yeah, it's an interesting one, but I don't have an answer.
2: Yeah, excellent. Thanks, James. Um, quite a few very good questions, quite a few highly voted questions. We'll try and um, pick some of these. Uh, so if we can't pick and choose from the gospel when is it okay to apply the context of 2021 to it in terms of societal issues? Now, just quickly, there's an example here of the role of women and men in the church, which is something that we will be putting a lot of time and thought into in July in our um, humanity series. So I won't get you to speak to that specific example tonight, James. But how do we kind of, when is it okay to apply the context of 2021 to the gospel?
1: Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I quite understand the premise of the question. My confidence is that the gospel of Christ applies in every place, in every age, um, whatever the audience. I think the point that I wanted to make tonight in that central point is that um, it's, it's fine to wrap around the gospel way cultural ways of response and worship, uh, of living out the faith. Uh, I think we would find quite strange Uh, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ, as they live out the gospel and they express it and worship it, um, even within our own city, let alone across the globe. Um, But what I'm saying, we've got to be really, really careful that those cultural things don't attach themselves to the gospel and somehow become prerequisite for salvation. And why we who have a culture here need to make sure that we might be having people come in, and we pray they do, who might have no taste or background in our way of gathering, our way of worshipping, our way of responding to that gospel. Um, So I'm not sure if that answers uh, the question so much, but um, in terms of application of the gospel, I would hope that that I am in exactly the same position as Peter and Paul. I am a sinful man in desperate need of a saviour, and that saviour has come for me, and I now call him Lord. And I am confident tonight of living with him forever. That's the application that matters. I think uh, some of the cultural things around it, yes, we do need to step with wisdom. We need to be careful. Gender matters and all the rest of it.
2: Cool. Thanks, James. I think following on from that question, um, you said that our culture, like the way that we do things here in St. Ives, uh, might risk adding to the Gospel. Are you able to be more specific? Were you referring to anything in particular with that?
1: No, I, I don't have any sort of... I would have said it if I thought there was something here that we were really, really requiring of someone before we believe that they are saved and welcome here. Um, I love this church. We fight tooth and nail, I think, to tell the gospel clearly and plainly, to do it well as we can in our context. But, no, I have no abiding sort of suspicion. I would have said it um, uh, otherwise. I just think we need to be alert and aware all the time that quietly things grow, like... Uh, if Voodie shows up with, you know, major tattoos. I mean, we know Nigel's got a big eagle in the back, but like, <laughs> no, like, but he hasn't, he hasn't shared that with people. And I think that's...
2: Not yet. <laughs> but in
1: seriousness. In seriousness. We need to be... I think all of us have certain prejudices. As we're a church that is opening our doors to Mandarin speakers, how are you going? How am I going with those who simply don't speak our language, who don't come from our background? It's a serious test, isn't it? Australia battles deeply with racist matters. It always has. So we need to be really careful as a church. Is our door genuinely wide open? And how ready are we to welcome the stranger with that one same gospel that saves? So I think it's, just, it's a call for us to be alert, but I don't have abiding fears about us right now. You may, you may be alert to things, but that's why I said name it, do battle.
2: Excellent. Thanks. That's a really helpful warning and a helpful challenge for us all, I think a challenge for our community here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, James, how can we speak to our friends of other faiths, for instance, maybe Roman Catholics, and show them that all we need is Jesus to be saved and that it's not by our works or following a law? How would you speak into that? Um, I think one of my failings as a
1: younger man, and I think I I, I always assumed that people who'd said no, to Christianity and yes to something else, were saying no to the Gospel. I never bothered to ask them further questions, to investigate, to ask the second, third, fourth question, because I would have found out, I think, often that they, didn't, they hadn't heard the Gospel. They were rejecting a God that I'd reject as well. They had a read on God and what it meant to be saved that was complete rubbish. It was most likely a works-based thing. I said, no, 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 no. So I think first up, find out about the other. Find out about who they are. Be curious. Mind them for all they're worth and walk alongside them. Um, I mean, spend some time this week, if you've got a chance, as well as Galatians, in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, uh, in Romans 14. Uh, they are chapters about being elastic for Christ, about being, uh, being able to move and come alongside someone in their context without compromising the gospel. Paul says, I, in order to reach the weak, I became weak. In order to reach the Jewish people, I became as someone under the law, even though I'm not under the law. To reach the uncircumcised, I I became like one who was not under the law, whereas in fact I'm under the law of Christ. That is grace. So he's talking about moving deliberately, sensitively into the context of your friend, Um, whatever belief they might have. Listen, draw them out, but always go in with faith. God knows your friend, knows your family member inside out. They're no mystery ask that you might be, as a living sacrifice, in his hands. Then, when the chance comes, when the opportunity arises, speak, but also act. I think it's really important for us that we're not frightened of other people. Uh, The presence of someone who's a Muslim or a Hindu or a rank atheist, it doesn't soil me. We're not to be frightened of the others. There are times when we do need to step back from certain company, uh, if it's really, really damaging to us, if it's not healthy. But... Go in as someone who's not, yeah, you don't frighten me. Um, I go in with the Lord, I want to know who you are because that's how Lord is as well. Um, I hope that helps. That's a broader answer. I think do some reading, find out what some of these other faiths are. I think when someone tells me um, they're Roman Catholic, often if you push hard, I find out I actually know more about Roman Catholicism than they do. They've just grown up in it and that's a label. So I think don't assume too much, be curious. Be curious. Ask the question.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and I think the rest of our Galatians series will help with that as well. I know Mm -hmm. we're going to be looking at Galatians 3 next week, which will be excellent for understanding being saved by our faith and not by our works, which will be wonderful. I think,
1: too, just to add to that, and you'll see one of the questions in the growth group studies. I think we have a habit, particularly in Sydney, of talking about the Lord in forensic terms. Now, I've done that tonight. This is justification, redemption, forgiveness... Are being set right. They're, they're legal terms that are biblical and right. I want to encourage us to talk more and more about God in relational terms. When you're talking about being saved, talk about the fact that God's my Father. Jesus is my Lord. That carries immense weight. It's not just a legal transaction, it's an entirely new relationship. That's why Paul's so pumped at the end of chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. This is my Lord. So, I think if that helps, talk in relational terms first up, because then all of the forensic terms will buttress that and give it structure.
2: Yeah. Unreal. Thanks, James. I think that'll bring us to the end of question time. There's plenty of questions there. I'd encourage you to have a look at them, and we'll deal with Sermon Extra at some point throughout the week. Sure. Excellent. That'll be so Nigel
1: good. and I might go head to head. I don't know. Don't. I'd pick you. After that call on the, <laughs> the tattoo, I suspect
2: not. <laughs> In, in a physical fight, I'd pick you. No, no, no. Oh, he's better than me, mate. The younger man prevails. <laughs> next, next yeah, You're guys. welcome. <laughs> I won't see you next week because I'll be fired. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. I'll, I'll invite Rach up.